What's going on guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Mental Corner Podcast, the show where I bring on guests from all different backgrounds to talk all the things mental health. I am looking tired, I am looking rough, but that is okay. I am very excited to give you this new episode. Today I'm joined with Carly Samek. So Carly is a licensed therapist specializing in OCD and anxiety. She's currently partnering with NoCD, which is an organization working to help 180 million people with OCD around the world regain their lives. This was such a great conversation, and I really want to thank Carly again for coming onto the show and having this discussion with me. I really think you guys are going to enjoy this one. Now, before we get into the episode, you know the drill. If you're listening, please like, comment, share, subscribe, give five stars if you're on that podcast platform, share with someone who might want to hear this episode. It's a really great one, and I can't wait for you to listen. I'll talk to y'all very soon. Have a great rest of your day. All right, we're good to go. Carly, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy that you are here as well. So my first question, I ask the same for every guest. What got you inspired to get into the line of uh, like mental health work therapy? Yeah, I will to be frank, I kind of fought it for a little bit. I started as an English major when I went off to school. Uh, and, you know, I'd heard growing up for years, like, oh, you would make a great therapist. Like you're such a people person. And in my mind, a therapist was this perfect human that knew how to advise people. And I was like, that's not me. <laughs> I'm a mess like everybody else. Um, slowly but surely, it was actually like realizing that the psychology of characters was what I really liked in books. Um, took a course that I think I had to, I think it was like a prerequisite and it was a psych course and I just fell in love. So that was what kind of got me curious, but really what like made my heart bloom over it was realizing that so much of the work that I would be doing and now that I do do is all about helping people to feel more comfortable and more empowered by their own story. So again, you know, as the previous English major in me, I love hearing another person's story. I love learning about another person's story. And so much of what therapy really is, is recognizing where maybe some of the storytelling you're telling yourself is not helpful, um, but being empowered by tough moments you've been through. So yeah, I would say that those were the primary things that brought me into being a therapist. Yeah. So, so like not feeling empowered as in like when you retell your story, you're just shining it all in like a negative light or something often yeah so I mean one of the most common things I talk to people and you know I right now specialize in OCD and anxiety but I've worked in the gamut of mental health spaces I've worked in inpatient hospitals I've worked in intensive outpatient I've done community stuff and across the board I think human beings tend to be so self-critical um, so that voice very often sounds negative sometimes it can even be punishing um, shame. I think shame and guilt are two emotions that are, I, I want to use the word misunderstood only because they're, they're only often talked about in this very hushed voice and negative light. And I think that if we can, again, kind of reframe, see that in a different light, learn how to work through that part of your story, they can be empowering. As, as crazy as that sounds, like shame and guilt can be these things that vanish and what comes out of that is vulnerability, um, love, appreciation. So yeah, negative self-talk, demeaning self-talk, critical self-talk. Right. I, I don't know if you've read this book, but I just finished 
like a month ago reading uh, Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. My favorite I, book right now. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. And they actually bring up shame and guilt. And like, it, it's so true how you hear like, or not even hear, you say it like, oh, I'm guilty about this. Yeah. There's no analyzing after you just go I'm guilty and then that's all you talk about yes it's oh so Brené Brown everything she's ever done is my favorite but the atlas of the heart I've just been like she's I've heard her refer to it as the encyclopedia for whatever you're feeling and I feel like that's a great way to describe the book Um, Mm -hmm. but she does such a fabulous job at illustrating how we take these one-line statements and live by them essentially sometimes and especially with shame and guilt it can lead us to some really negative head spaces Right. Yeah. Because then you don't do any work. Yeah. And you're just labeled as a guilty. Yes. Yeah. Bad. I'm not. So, you know, guilt is I feel bad about something I did. Shame is I am bad. And when those two things start playing together, I don't want to go do things. I don't want to feel good about myself. I don't want to be open to good things. So one of my favorite things to do with someone who is struggling with that, with uh, shame and guilt and that negative critic is doing like hope, what I call hope exposure. So in the line of work that I do, I do exposure response therapy, which is essentially a therapy that helps a person to lean into what's uncomfortable. That's the exposure part. And then we work at changing how you respond to that. So Mm. hope is actually a very challenging variable for someone who's really struggling with that shame and guilt piece. And uh, you know, you, when you think about hope and self-compassion, I think people think it's like the wooey gooey sweetness stuff, but it can be pretty challenging and like, I don't know, kind of rock and roll. It's a really fun part of therapy to mess with someone about, or to mess with, with someone else on what about hope do you hold yourself back from? Let's lean into that. Let's feel that. And then let's open ourselves up to it. It's pretty cool. Right. That is really cool. Now, now when, with, doing all this work with clients and doing all this research, did it help your personal life in any way, like behind the scenes? Hugely. <laughs> behind the scenes, in the scenes, in front of the scenes. Yeah. I, so, I mean, I found my way into becoming a therapist, like I said, through a combination of being at school, kind of following my heart, following my nose. But, you know, I was a person like anybody else, as I sort of mentioned before, who was quote unquote, feeling messy at some point or another. Um, and I would say that all of the work that I've done, both my own therapy, school, my actual career has helped me behind the scenes in my own personal journey with mental health. I will really, I do feel like this exposure response work that I'm doing now is some of the most profound work that I utilize in my every single day. Um, because again, all, all it's about is how can I lean into discomfort and uncertainty and respond to it in a way that is not critical, that is not shaming, that is not fear provoking, and rather is tolerating, accepting, willing, uh, which, you know, when we can lean into uncertainty and doubt with that, options are kind of endless. Right. Yeah. Now, do you do that alone or with um, like another therapist present for your own personal? Oh, great uh, question. I go to therapy because I think all therapists should go to therapy. And I'm sorry if someone disagrees, but I do. I think that if you are a person professionally or even personally who wants to be available for others, you have to do your own work. Like, it, right. And that doesn't necessarily mean a, with a therapist, it could be with a group of community, it could be with uh, workbooks, but yes, yeah, so I do my own therapy, my therapist doesn't specialize in ERP, but we talk a lot about that internal voice and story. Um, you know, I was a kid growing up who was very parentified. So I've always been someone who's high expectations of self. So a lot of the work that I do is leaning into 
what if I don't do it perfectly? Like, what if I don't get to exactly what I want to, how I think I'm supposed to do it? Um, and we do that in kind of our own uh, smattering of ways. But then I honestly, like in a moment to moment, day to day basis, if I hear that hamster wheel start up, I start using the skills that I teach people all day long. Mm-hmm. I have to imagine that that perfectionism, like you're, you subconsciously strive for, like in, it, it must be challenging when you have, you're, when you're in a profession, sorry, where like 70, 80% of the result is up to the client. Yeah. Oh, you know, it's funny you say that. I've never thought about it that way. I actually, I think it's one of the few spaces in my life where another person's, the texture of their life, the, the, the pain, the challenge, the anger, the excitement, I love all of it. Like that to me is perfection as a person who's willing to be all of those things. And then of course, flip the finger around at myself and no, I have to make sure that it's all right on top for myself. But yeah, now that you say it in my work professionally, my favorite thing is working with someone who's willing to be all the colors of the emotions wheel and all the, the textures of humanness. Um, to me, that is perfection. What a scary way to be perf- perfect though. Oh yeah. It's a lot of bravery. I gotta say it's a lot of willingness, openness, vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And when you were talking about like how therapists need therapy, I don't know why this keeps coming up in my head. I don't know if you've been following the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. Yeah, look like um, good portion of it. Yeah, but she I think it was her therapist or psychotherapist or something. He was on the stand mm-hmm. and he just had the shortest temper and was like yelling at people and all the comments were like, That's her therapist. <laughs> It's like that guy might need someone. Yeah, he could probably benefit. There is, well, I tell people all the time, I mean, if you're going to see a therapist, let's say that's how you decide you want to do your own work, you are going for a service. You know, yes, it's this like very cool, awesome space. And I like to think of therapy as more than just a service, but like at the end of the day, you are going for a service. So if you're sitting in front of someone who you're not jiving well and like they they might seem short-tempered or they don't seem to listen well like that's not that's not the quality of service you're looking for you're allowed to go find another therapist you're allowed to say thanks but no thanks and I don't think everyone knows that I don't think everyone realizes you can either give feedback to your therapist which I ask for that all the time from my clients like how do things feel do you feel like I'm hearing you where you're at where are the goals you want to be your therapist should be asking you those things but if they're not give them feedback. They need to hear it. And if they don't do well with it, they probably need to go do their own work too. And you're allowed to fire them. You're allowed to find someone who does provide the kind of quality of atmosphere that you're looking for. Yeah. that I mean, I, I, I've definitely been in a situation where I was like, this guy needs feedback. <laughs> and I was so scared to say anything. I was like, yeah. Oh, I feel for that deeply. You know, I looking back, I've had I, at least one therapist I can think of whom I wish, like looking back, I was probably maybe 1920 been like, Hey, that wasn't cool. I <laughs> <laughs> <Didn't> love that. <laughs> and I don't know. It's so interesting. Cause I think with medical providers, with therapists, um, maybe it's the idea that this person's an expert, but we hold ourselves back from like saying, Hey, that didn't feel good. You're supposed to be someone who's supporting me. And that was that wasn't a great way to do so, but I do think we should be empowering people to do that more often. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to I wanted to talk a little bit about um the ER ERP ERT. Oh, you got it. It's uh, either ERP or ERT. 
Look at that. I got both. <laughs> um, like, just to take, like, for me anyway, because I've, I've never really heard of it. Like, t- what would you do with a client, like, from the start of the session to the end? Like, how, what does that look like? Yeah. Well, so when you go to therapy for kind of a specialized or, like, niche skill building kind of therapy, like ERP is, sessions are going to look a little bit different than say, if you're going to someone to do talk therapy, which just sort of means that you're going in with generally whatever's going on for you that week and you're processing and reflecting because with the specialized skill therapy, we kind of have an agenda. Um, so the start of session might look really similar to anything anyone's pretty accustomed to, you know, you come in, how are you doing? What's been going on this week? And then what we'll do is based on that person's treatment, where they are in treatment, we will create exposures and practice the art of sitting with what's discomforting to them. So for me, it's some of the coolest creative work I've ever gotten to do because people's fears and discomforts range in wide variety. So Mm. it might be doing some really crazy thing with like a toilet in in a bathroom somewhere via Zoom. I'm asking, you know, my seven-year-old client to touch the toilet lid and then I'm touching the toilet (laughs) playing like double dog dare that way. With an adult person, it might be watching a video or looking at a photo of, um, you know, harm OCD, primarily OCD is what I work with. Uh, Often individuals really fear anything that they think they could harm someone with. They have no interest in harming anyone. It's intrusive thoughts that's making them even think this stuff. Um, So long and short, you might look at a photo of something that they avoid at all costs, like a kitchen knife, like a dull butter knife. And we sit there with it. We sit with the discomfort. We allow it to be uncomfortable. And we work on not letting that hamster wheel start spinning off into a doubting spiral. Uh, So the work can be very, very unique to each person. But primarily, it's a lot of checking in what's been going on, practicing, reflecting, and talking about how we're going to use what we learned today in life. Mm. And do do you ever get pushback when you're going to like the uncomfortable area with a client? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And honestly, I love it because one of the reasons that ERP is this really creative work is I'm literally useless without my clients. If I'm creating an exposure for them and I'm doing it just completely based off of what I'm thinking without any input, then it probably isn't going to be the right exposure for them. So it's super collaborative. I'll throw like three ideas out. They give me back feedback. So I get feedback that way and push back that way. But we totally kind of sit with Carly. I don't know about that. That feels like yeah. right now. And humor is actually one of the most tangible ways that myself and my clients can kind of work through that anticipatory moment of this feels like too much. Ultimately, if a person's telling me, hey, this feels like this is going to drive me into a panic, that's not productive. You know, that is when we are in a panic state, we're not in a space where we can learn and reflect. So we get creative, we edit it as we need to, but we never walk away. We find a new way to get at it from a different perspective and we build our confidence. So the next time we can go back to it. Right. That is so important. I know a lot of people in my life, including me who benefited, well, mm, easy on the term benefited, but used uh, walking away excessively. Mm -hmm. Avoidance is a very common, common safety behavior is how we refer to it, but they're not actually keeping you safe. It feels like it is in that moment, but it's actually just increasing that fear, increasing that doubt. How were you able to work on the avoidance stuff or the walking away? 
Uh, I mean, for me, it, it just came down to I had no other option um, mm -hmm. because I, I avoided it for like a decade. And then it was like, oh, I really am trying to end my life. So maybe I should go get help because I didn't want to die. And so that, that it, for me, it was like my back was against the wall. I had no choice. And th that was the only thing keeping me going was like, if I don't face this uncomfortable stuff that I really don't want my therapist to talk about, uh, I'm not going to be here. I mean, I, I think that that is the most, one of the most like profound and primal instincts, right. That kicks in and says, I got to do, I can't walk away. I have to do something right here. It's got to be different. It's not going to be pretty, but there's no, I, I'm not letting this push me that far, but avoidance can for so many people. And honestly, a, a very large majority of people that I work with, not everyone, but a large majority of people feel like they've been backed against a wall and that's what has led them to therapy. I'm hoping in the future, this is the kind of stuff that's talked about in kindergarten, like feeling your feelings, mm -hmm. letting things be scary, learning how to lean into doubt versus avoid it. Until that happens, I do think that it's more common than not that people get to their adulthood and realize this isn't the way, this isn't the way to live. Right. Is there a way for people who practice or experience avoidance? Like, is there a way for them to identify it before that back is against the wall? Oh yeah, absolutely. So one of my favorite things to do is to teach people sort of how to more somatically and in a textured way, kind of catch their warning signs, their indicators that that fear is turning on and these common behaviors like avoidance are coming up. So you might start actually less with the avoidance and more of what are some indicators that I'm getting into a feared thinking style? So my decision-making is not based on my values. It's based on mm -hmm. fear because that's avoidance is going to be the primary choice for decision-making based in fear. And that might feel like butterflies in the tummy. It could feel like your chest tightening. It could feel like your mind going blank or racing a million miles an hour. Um, you know, these are things that people most often that they sort of despise these feelings and rightfully so. But when we try to look at them as signals, like your body, like is super in tune and going, Hey, you're feeling scared right now. And viewing it as that versus this like doom indicator, we can then go, okay, so what are some other options? So I'd first and foremost say, get, get interested and curious in what your warning signs are that you're getting into a fear thinking mode. And from there, that's when I want you to have like three options. What is some, what is someone I can talk to? Who's someone that I could, you know, bounce some ideas off of. So I'm going to delay the avoidance a little bit, but I limit the avoidance. So how could I maybe do a little bit less avoidance than I normally would if avoiding full out means like walking away from this situation completely and isolating myself in the room, how could I walk away, but just to the room adjacent or talk about it without going into great detail and to the best of your ability, eliminate the avoidance. So that might say, I'm going to set a timer for 10 minutes and talk about this thing that I want to avoid. And after those 10 minutes, I'm going to take a break. And then coping skills as you need them, grounding, mindfulness, you know, in, in ERP work, we try to avoid using coping skills to take away discomfort because what we want to happen is for a person to sit with it to the point where it's like they've learned to tolerate the weight of it and then they grow stronger than the weight of it. But again, if you're in a panic state, that's not productive for you. Ground down, do some breathing. Um, but yeah, I hope that's helpful. Just a couple of ideas. Look out for your warning signs that you're getting into a feared state of mind. Once you know you're there, have ways to delay the process. Use another person as your barrier to do so. Let them know you're trying to avoid, limit it, or try to eliminate it. Mm, I love all of that. I, I remember when I when I first 
stopped that hamster wheel from going i remember going like yeah that's right that's what i thought i'm that i'm that guy i'm that guy it, it, it's very empowering it is isn't it wild when you realize you can stop the hamster wheel mm. super crazy experience to go oh i don't have to let this like drive the car i'm in at all times it's like wait this doesn't define who I am. Okay. I am not just this person who is constantly running from myself at all times. This is wild. I can sit with this. I almost went through like a, a positive identity crisis when I first did it. I was like, oh wait, I'm not, I don't have to be the hothead that people labeled me as. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I see that happen for people so often in the work I do where they're like, wait, what else is out there for me? It's so cool. Like someone will come to me for OCD work. And so they get really on top of that. But then, like I said, like this is relatable for every person. Every person knows what it's like to want to avoid or find instant relief from their discomfort. So once they get their OCD managed, I've had people I work with who are like, I'm ready to move across the country. I'm ready to go get a new job. Like they're ready to live in spite of fear. Right. I love that. What 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 got you what got you into OCD? Because you were saying you were in a multiple different fields. Why why'd you choose OCD? Anxiety had been something that I had been more and more interested in as I was going through my career. Um, I worked with trauma for a really long time, and that's still very much a part of the world of what I'm doing now. Um, but essentially I was just getting more in interested about both the science behind it, um, the, the cognitive pieces of it. And then I also became a restorative yoga teacher while I was in grad school. And that was a huge sort of more holistic learning for me about how to manage your physical somatic um, anxiety pieces. Then pandemic hits, I'm working at the hospital. Mm. I've been there for a bit and I don't know what it was. Something turned on in my head where I was like, wow, there's so many. I was working with children, adolescents. So young as four, as old as 18. And I was like, so many of these kids just have this intense obsessive thinking quality and these thoughts that they're having are totally not of their value and that's what they're they're freaked out by you know it's not that they're having these weird intrusive thoughts and they they're excited by them um that it they're having these weird intrusive thoughts and they're being plagued by them and they're stuck on this wheel over it so i was ready for something new i wanted to work for a program that i could learn more from started doing some job searching and i found no cd which is the program i work for now we treat obsessive compulsive disorder, other compulsive disorders, and long and short, they added the definition. They, I was like, that's it. That's what I'm looking at. And it is looking at OCD in this very world, I'd say big world picture of a person who is struggling with intrusive thoughts, images, urges, and doubts that are not in alignment with their values causes immense fear and discomfort. And because of that, they're stuck in these loops of compulsions, both mental rituals and physical to just try to survive it. Um, so it really got me excited, both from an education standpoint, but I saw the need to. Right. Yeah. It, because we were talking off camera about the, the huge misunderstanding of OCD and like you, you just described it perfectly. But like when when I thought actually still kind of because I'm not very educated on OCD at all. But when when I think about OCD, it's all that, you know, education you're taught when you're growing up where it's one thing mm -hmm. there's there's only one form of ocd that you can experience and it's when someone's like my room needs to be clean yeah. or i need to put all these colored plates in one spot mm -hmm. yeah that's and because that's mostly what like society's put out there like movies i always refer to i think it was called monk was a show that was on for forever he was uh contamination he had a germ phobia i think he had like specifics so ocd can really run the gamut in terms of what someone obsesses over 
But interestingly, more common than is contamination, which is what most people think of, or like orderly stuff, harm, um, sexual related intrusive thinking, um, uh, gender orientation, religious, existential, these are all the more common themes. And really what, what's happening here is there's something about this theme, there's something about this thinking intrusive thought that this person's having that feels vulnerable and uncomfortable to them. And with OCD, a person's brain is misinterpreting their thought as threat. So they're having this thought, I'm just gonna use for example, harm OCD is the fear of that I'm either gonna harm myself or others. I don't want to, but what if I lose control? So it's a lot of what ifs. Um, their brain is misinterpreting that as a threat. Like, oh my gosh, I have to do something because I just thought, what if? So that in itself is a much more common OCD manifestation. I, ah, I shouldn't say more common. That is the, the common as it is orderly, neat, perfectionism, germ stuff. Um, that's why we're trying at OCD to get the word out there, that this is not just about what you've seen on the TV. This is if you're dealing with any kind of intrusive thought content that feels obsessive. Right. And with your kids, like, is it, this might be a dumb question, but is there like a specific age where you see more cases of OCD? No, I think that's a great question. So interestingly, a lot of times kids don't even realize they have it. So one of the most common things I hear is because I now work with as I think the, the wisest person I've ever, I always say not the eldest, but the wisest person I've ever worked with was 80 at no OCD. Um, Many people I work with in their adulthood, as I'm starting to run through the assessment with them and doing some education, they'll go, oh my God, when I was eight years old, I was doing X, Y, and Z. So for kids, because OCD is so often this mental ritual, it just feels like thinking to them. They don't know any different. But mm -hmm. very commonly, if you're going to see OCD in kids, it can be as young as school age. Um, it's not super common, but it can be younger than that. There can be some little idiosyncrasies. Very commonly, you'll start to see it in prepubescent kids, um, whether it be because you know starting bigger responsibilities to school. Um, there's some viruses that can actually interestingly cause an onset of OCD. Most of the time, kids have a predisposition to it. And then even I think more interesting, again, for these adults, what they were finding was it wasn't impacting their functioning as a kid or a teen, but then they got to adulthood and it just sort of blew up. Usually life got busier, there was something more important going on. And, you know, this was stuff that had never really gotten the care it deserved. And so it just sort of really got in the way of their life. And that's why they'd come to see me. Mm. There's viruses that can induce OCD. Yeah. So um, strep is the most common. So it's referred to as pans and pandas. It's considered an inflammatory disorder. Um, it's most common. I'm, I'm hoping I get all the stats right on this, but it's most common, I believe, with kids between the ages of like five and 14 not one of those things where if a person had strep when they were, or, you know, they find out their kid has strep, okay, this is what's going to happen. It's not like that, but it is seen frequently enough that it's treated relatively normally. Wow. I had no idea. You learn something new every day. That's so fascinating. Yeah. It's treated by antibiotics and then therapy. It's uh, usually the fastest, the two of them together. Cause you know, by the time that the, the OCD has really presented itself, it, it comes on pretty quickly, but still by the time it's presented itself, the kid does need skill set and tools to be able to work themselves out of their compulsions, but then they're also treated by a med provider too. Right, man. Interesting. So with, on, on that note, not really, but like kind of when lockdown happened, yeah. 
did the like quarantine and restrictions and mask wearing, did that induce any sort of OCD in children? We definitely saw an uptick in it for sure. And I think that there was, I think it was the quarantine. I think it was, if I were to like really go at the root cause, it was the uncertainty. It was, everyone was so uncertain of what was to come. You know, I remember, you know, when everything first sort of started happening, it'll be six weeks, six weeks. And that, and then, two months, we just got a bit, and then a year, oh, you'll go back to school next year. Oh, wait, no, we're going to try hybrid. So for kids, there was so much uncertainty. The adults in their life had so much uncertainty, and there was really a collective increase in overall anxiety disorders in general um, and depression too. So when I was working at the hospital at the start of the pandemic, we really saw a rise in kids who were struggling with that. Um, and then since going to no CD, I, I left the hospital and came to no CD in 2021. So about a year and a half into the pandemic, we've definitely seen a rise in it since I would say now we're a little bit more normalized to it. So we're not correlating COVID as a major onset or increase to OCD diagnoses. Um, but that's not to say that it won't still cause some upset. Right. Was there a way that you guys, um, kept kids kept giving kids hope in a time like that because it's pretty freaking hard even when especially when like the adults in your life or the people you look up to are also like I don't know what's happening yeah gosh I hope we did <laughs> let me start with <laughs> um when I worked at the hospital I just remember so deeply wanting to normalize the kids experiences because I think one way that adults we as adults and it's not ill intent it's it's just we want them to feel better we're trying to take away their discomfort and sometimes that's not what a person needs sometimes a person doesn't need to hear they're okay sometimes a person needs to hear oh gosh you don't feel good do you you're not feeling okay things are feeling tough right now and they need to feel seen and heard and so you know I think that was a lot of it especially when I was working inpatient because you're stuck at a hospital. It's in the middle of a pandemic. There's so much with that going on. Um, and then another major thing that I know in that space that we tried to do was try to help kids think about what they wanted to do with the world, as big as that sounds. And I mean, like little ones are able to think about this stuff, like where do they want to go? What do they want to do? That hope feature. We didn't want them to stop looking towards the future open-mindedly because uncertainty is not equivalent to doom, but anxiety will tell you otherwise. Um, and then at no CD, I would say the same, but the other big thing is we connected them to other kids with OCD. So kids really felt that isolation, not being able to be at school. But I think a lot of children who are struggling with mental health, they feel even that much more isolated. And so at no CD, we do try to connect other kids with kids via um, different virtual camps that other programs put on, um, programming where kids can sign in with their parents and see other kids their age who are struggling with the same thing. So trying to build community. Right. I think that, I mean, for me personally, anyway, that was one of the best things that came out of me sharing my story and my experiences was like, you meet people that had similar ones. And when I was never talking about it, I was like, I will never find someone like this. So to have, have that for kids is so important. Oh, so much because going back to that negative self-critic, you think you're the worst person ever. When you're really stuck in that tunnel, no one is as bad. No one, no one's got this thing. It's like, you know, where are you supposed to go with that? So when you hear another person, you know, the particulars might be a little bit different, but the essence is still the same. It's this really beautiful connected process that I think helps 
keep people afloat more so yeah absolutely i when when that because up here in canada we had like i think it was four lockdowns Mm. and i was a swim coach throughout a couple of them and my kids are like eight to ten and i remember going into the fourth one the practice was just quiet Mm. because we had just come back and all the kids were excited to finally do something and see their friends and then it, it you'd walk on deck and you're like we're going back yeah so god it's tough to be an adult too in those moments and have to deliver news like that and and be in those feelings for yourself too i mean no one was immune to that no one i don't I, if they were i i really don't know how they were able to manage it they were in a small room by themselves watching their favorite tv show the entirety of the pandemic that's the only way i can imagine it but yeah, to be in that space. And so I think this, these last couple of years, I'm definitely like simplifying way too much. It, one of the biggest lessons I think collectively we've learned is how to sit with uncomfortable emotions because we had no other choice. Right. Now, if you're, if you're like a parent or something and you're, you want your kid to start doing that, like sitting with the uncomfortable stuff, how does that conversation go as a parent to a child? Because for, for adult to adult, it's like, you just got to deal with your shit, man. Yeah. Like that, that's just what it is. But for a kid, it, it's got to be different. It, it is to some, to some degree, maybe actually the first thing I'm going to say is they got to, they can't just talk the talk. They got to walk the walk. So kids are watching. <laughs> that's how they learn, especially when they're like younger than 10. Um, you know, even after that, even as teens, we all look to the adults in our lives. How are they responding to this moment? So actually when I'm working with doesn't matter if they're four or they're 18. I want to know who their guardians are, who their major adult supports are. And I want to start coaching them on this stuff because if they can role model those behaviors, it's going to increase the kid's willingness towards it. So that would be the first thing. First, number one, get creative is the number two. So I think a lot of times, not just parents, therapists, even teachers, even think four, five, six, seven-year-olds aren't capable of understanding quote-unquote complicated things like sitting with fear and uncomfortable feelings, their, their brains are so imaginative. Like they, they have little universes up here that have just like crazy ability to visualize. So you got to bring it down to what they're interested in. If they love Pokemon, all right, let's find an episode where their favorite character had a hard moment. They had to sit with it and be there and talk vulnerably about it. Um, I love drawing with kids. My undergrad degree, I specialize in art therapy. So I'll have them draw a brain with me and we'll walk through how thoughts work. As kids get older, like into teenhood, I'm always interested in what they're interested in because we can usually find excerpts and things like that. But I think also for preteens and teens, sometimes adults, we count them out. We think that they don't get it. They do. Mm. Oh my God. (laughs) They do. We have to get it. We have to get that they are feeling big things. They're thinking about it. And yes, we might see it differently than them right now. Okay, that's fine because where they are, that's where they are. But being willing to kind of meet them where they're at, hear their point of view, and then just go, what about this? So walk the walk, get creative, and be willing to open your perspective to your kid's perspective. Mm. Is that, is that, um, statement like you don't get it or you don't know yet is that like a prerequisite to be an adult because when I was when I was a teenager I heard that all the time when I was like I'm feeling this they're like you don't know what that feels like it's like okay well I have a pretty 
I don't know what this feeling is. I thought it was that. But then as I got older, I felt the same way towards teens because I was like, you don't get it. And then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's what people told me. When did the transformation happen? How did I do this? <laughs> yes. That's a great question. I don't know what kind of microchip gets like turned on at what age. You know, I, and this is just purely my personal, I can't even say professional because it's my personal view based off of my profession and then my worldview. I think that often when adults view a kid talking about the world and their immediate reaction and response is, you don't get it, there's something their kid just said that triggered something in them that feels vulnerable. Because mm. if we're not willing to listen to another person's point of view, it's because something feels unsafe, we're avoiding, we're trying to set a blockade. That's not to say you're going to agree. There's a difference between agreeing and being open-minded and listening. You might still have something to teach your kid, likely will. <laughs> Objectivity is something we grow with time. Mm -hmm. It's reactive, that sense of just wanting to shut it down. You're probably responding more to something internally than we are to what the child's actually saying. Right. I've definitely done that. Like a kid will say something. I'm like, you don't get it. Yeah. Like, shut shut <laughs> up. <laughs> when they make like a really good point you're like I didn't think about that shut up you don't get it I'm gonna need you to just keep that to yourself right now <laughs> save that I'll come to I'll come to you later when no one else is looking I'll ask about that again <laughs> now now um because off camera and in our pre-call you mentioned that you were also the oldest child I am oldest of three yeah I'm proud <laughs> yep, me too oldest of three um but did you ever feel like experience those feelings like you don't get it shut up to your younger siblings <laughs> oh with my I thought you were gonna say with my parents to me definitely oh that too and with my younger siblings a thousand percent I mean I know for me my experience of being the eldest child I was like the second parent in a lot of cases and just be because of uh dysfunction that happened in my family I also became kind of what's referred to as parentified child I took on a role that was probably was not probably was way beyond what I should have been dealing with at 17 16 years old but even when I was younger, I mean, I don't know about you, but as, as the oldest, I had this internal sense of responsibility. Again, I think we'll call it per, per responsibility perfectionism of we got to follow the rules. We got to make sure everything is what, where it's supposed to be and how we're supposed to be doing it. And so my younger brother and sister really didn't like that. They did not like that they had a bossy older sister. <laughs> and I get a lot, you don't understand. The best part was they both outgrew me like pretty quickly. So I'm about five, three. <laughs> There's like this huge kid towering over me. Um, but you know, I was still the boss. Oldest child still wins the battle one way or another. <laughs> of course. Yeah. My, my younger brother is like a thrill seeker sometimes. Like he, he does hella skiing. He'll like, if we go normal skiing, he'll just go straight down. He likes waterboarding and all that. Yes, youngest or is he the middle? middle he's the, he's the middle yeah that was my middle child brother and I have a very stark memory of him just going straight down the mountain and almost taking me out <laughs> yeah while, while we're I'm like doing pizza the whole way down I'm like I don't know why you do that <laughs> so yeah like I, I was the same way I liked following the rules I liked like it, it made me nervous when I would when something went out of line and then my younger sister and brother were always like shut up yes yeah Oh, and I don't know about you, but for me, I mean, I just remember having this 
like frustration and kind of like maybe not resentment. I don't think that's the right word, but like, why don't you get it? <laughs> How are there not alarms going off in your heads? <laughs> like what's wrong with you? <laughs> and now as an, as adults now, we're all about, uh, I'm two years older than my brother, about three and a half years older than my sister. We can look back and like laugh to some degree about it, but it still shows up a little bit here and there. Um, I wouldn't say it's gone away. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm the same way. Because I, for me, anyway, it was like, um, my parents split up when I was right about to get into high school. Oh, God. And so for whatever reason, my mind went, Oh, okay, I got to be in charge of everything. now. Yep. And I got to make sure everything's good. And so for some reason, when, you, when you're that young, and you put a parental role on yourself, yes, it it just stays. It just sticks. It doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> and I remember, like, literally, I th- it was last month, we were on a family trip. Mm-hmm. And my sister didn't eat her meal because she wasn't hungry. And I, I was, like, getting angry at her at the dinner table. And everyone's like, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know why that bothers me so much. And I was just like, eat your meal. And she's like, <laughs> and she's like, I'm 19. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. When my sister was still like in her teens leading up, oh, there was, it's gotten better as she's gotten older. So she's 26 now. So I'm starting to let off a bit, but I mean, multiple phone calls. If I knew she was out on a trip doing something, she's the youngest, youngest, like did you pack enough? Have you thought these things through? It doesn't, it doesn't leave you. And, you know, similarly for me, a lot of the dysfunction in my household, unfortunately, both my parents dealt with addiction to some degree. And so that was about the same time in high school. It's a really formative period of our lives. I mean, we're supposedly trying to figure out who we are, you know, in developmental psych, that's usually about the time a person is starting to figure out who they are. And so I think it's, interesting right that at that pivoting moment is just about the time that you adopt that role that's not going to be something that just fades away naturally and I don't think it's all bad either I laugh at it now um it's taught me a lot about myself I think it's given me a lot of strengths that I wouldn't have otherwise can it go to the other side of the spectrum and become problematic absolutely and my brother and sister would be happy to tell you about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'm sure mine would too (laughs) Um, so with, with like being the eldest child, did you ever, um, like when you were going through like a rough time or like experiencing some sort of depression, anxiety or anything, did you ever have a hard time admitting to it because, because you were the eldest child? Yeah, I think it was, I don't know if I was really conscious that that was the why, but it was this sense that I wasn't supposed to not be okay. Like I needed, it was an expectation that not only would I be okay, but I would be really good at things and that I would project that. Um, I don't remember ever having the language either to be able to say, this is anxiety or this feels like depression or this feels like dysfunction. Um, And it really wasn't until I became probably 1920 when I really started exploring the world on my own that I started to adopt that language and learn more from others and I started seeking out therapy on my own but yeah no I don't have any memories of either having the language or thinking I was allowed to yeah that's the big one because I when I would like experience it and I was really struggling in my head I didn't want to admit it because of that thing before high school where I was like I I need to be a parent here yep Mm-hmm. it's like if they if they look at me and they see that I'm struggling then like I don't I don't want them to be affected oh yeah that was another piece of it and I mean I still feel that I'm like you know both my siblings are like grown adults and I'm like what can I do to make it easier for them <laughs> like, 
(laughs) (laughs) They don't mind that to some degree. (laughs) No, Carly, you don't need to do that. Um, But no, back then it was like, if I had felt some kind of burden or suffering, I didn't want them to feel it. I think it speaks to like, I, you know, I speak for myself, but I would say probably for yourself to a great deal of empathy, being like very empathetic and aware of others needs and feelings, um, which really does come, I think with that parentified role for sure. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge people pleaser, mm-hmm. like to the point where it doesn't benefit me. Yeah. Have you heard of, um, I'm starting to hear this phrase getting thrown around more and more recover, a recovering, um, people pleaser like really witnessing at witnessing it as something to recover from to some degree. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like in, in every aspect, Oh yeah. <laughs> like I would struggle so hard with that. Like, like in, in sports, I'd be like, I have to do well for my dad or my, my brother or my teammates. It was never like, Oh, do well for you. <laughs> <laughs> what a silly thought. <laughs> Why would I swim better for myself? Thank gosh, why would I try to achieve something to make myself happy and feel wholesome? I do remember one of the first few times that I really felt that for myself, though, in my like young adulthood. Um, I think part of it was school, but then I started doing triathlon and I did one of my longer races. And I remember like crossing the finish line. I was like, that was for me. It wasn't for anybody else. And it was so cool. It was like this crazy, crazy great experience. So that I think that was one of my big recovery steps from the people pleasing moments. Right. It, oh, that's a great feeling. When look, I kind of had that with this show where it was like yes. no one else asked for this. Mm-hmm. This is me. Mm-hmm. You're showing up for you. And by doing that, how best part though, you did that for you and it actually helped so many other people. The virtue of helping yourself helped others. That's a good feeling because then you, you, you please the people pleaser in you. You're like, Oh, I, I ultimately, maybe I just did it for other people. <laughs> I'd like to think that it's, um, a, like a healthier, softer, cause like people pleasing can, can feel almost addictive to some degree. I think lots of people can relate to that. As, I have to make sure everything's okay. Like that's the addiction that the instant relief you need is seeing others are situated and fulfilled. So like finding a way to fulfill yourself which so by happens naturally creates a consequence of betterment for others is like this much more delayed gratification, which I'm going to say probably is a much healthier version of it. Yeah, definitely. And you just, you just hit a a chord there because, because I grew up like my, with my parents arguing and like my family kind of feeling like it was breaking up Yeah. in, in a sense, like it was, it was all, it wasn't dysfunctional. It was just like a lot of arguing all the time. I felt like I had to keep it together. Yeah. And so I hated confrontation. Oh yeah. And that 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 has carried through with me the the whole way. Like I I I like to think I'm a relatively, you know, I'm 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 a pretty big dude. I'm not tall, but like I'm big. And so sometimes in certain scenarios, my friends will bring me if they need to, if they're about to do a, an argument yeah. with someone or something, they're like, here, here, you come and you can help us deal with it. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And then as soon as voices start to raise, I'm like, I, I have to leave. Yes. Like I, there's been times where I, I walk away. On, well, cause your poor body, your body is like alert, alert. This is not good stuff. We've been here before. We know this is not good stuff. It's, I mean, again, I do think that these formative experiences, and I say this both as a person who wor- is working through this themselves. And by the way, I, I believe that we work through this stuff throughout our lives. I think it's, it's a profound journey. 
It's a gift to get to work through it. Um, there's no such thing as a finish line when it comes to self-work like this. So that aside, I think that it can, it, this stuff can get not better, but it shifts. Like you learn something different about it and then it shifts and then it opens up a new view and then you live with that for a little bit longer and then opens up a bit more. But there are these moments that can just set off something that happened, something that was set off for you when you were like nine years old and you're like, I thought that was gone. <laughs> like, oh. I, I thought we worked through that. <laughs> that that it happened on the exact same trip that I got mad at my sister for. Uh, we there was like a, a basketball tournament, mm-hmm. and people just started chir- like getting really angry at each other oh, yeah. while yeah. we were playing. And like from from the the stands, they were like yelling out and like trying to fight and all that. And I was I was looking around and it felt like the teapot in my brain was about to blow and I just ran away. I was like, I have to leave. I can't do this anymore. Like I love basketball, but I was gonna panic. Yeah. I was like, okay, I don't even know you, but here, let's be friends. Like I was <laughs> I just can't do it. Happy right now. What could we do to diffuse the situation? And that's the thing is you learn like when you're so young, that is your survival mechanism is to figure out how to diffuse a situation or to get away from an uncomfortable situation like that. Going back to warning signs, that's that's it. Like that's your nervous system doing its job and letting you know this does not feel okay. And the the thing is that's good. Like we need that, right? We need that so that we don't think it's okay to like hang out in a street while a car is coming right on us. So we want those alarm bells. Can it become overreactive? Yes. And that's when I, you know, I get the question a lot. How do I know I should go to therapy? My first answer is always a healthy person is a person who has stuff going on that wants to go to therapy. It does not matter how big or small the stuff is. Second to that, if you find that your reactions and your responses to things are on these big elevated levels and it's impairing your ability to kind of go do things you love, other great reason to go to therapy too. Mm, yeah, the, yeah, that absolutely. So when you're like, let's say you're in a, a normal day-to-day situation like the basketball tournament or something and you start to feel that come on. Yep. Like the 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 nervousness, the panic, the yeah. all these thoughts that are creeping back in. Yep. How do you like? What are some ways for listeners to catch it and like kind of keep it together? Keep it moving. Well, so from an exposure response perspective, which quite honestly is what I use in my day to day when I feel elevated like that. First thing we're going to do is call out the process. If we can get that 3000 foot view and recognize, oh, I'm panicking because there's stimulation going on that triggers me, that sets me off, elevates my system. If we can get that 3000 foot view to go, this process that is a natural part of being a human being is going, we no longer are acting as though we're up against this internal grizzly bear. Cause that's what it feels like when we're getting into panic mode that we've got a fight or flight. Cause that's, what's getting turned on mm-hmm. first and foremost, we want to call out the process. Okay. Yeah. My panic is rising. Thoughts are moving. I'm getting, I'm getting stimulated here. Second to that is the best thing we can do in those moments is to get out of our head. And as counterintuitive as this might sound is get back into our body because we actually have far more control with what we do with our body than when our thoughts are racing. There's, there's no productivity that's going to come out of trying to discern what you're thinking is doing at that moment. Because again, you're in a survival mode, you're in a fight or flight mode. So one of my favorite things to ask a person to do is notice where it is. Where is the discomfort? Oh, it's in your chest. You feel that rapid beating. Okay. Just be there with it. Now, if you're edging on panic, like if we're at the point where like 
blurred vision, having a hard time being in a space like you were describing, that's when I really like to employ breath work because your breath is actually a barometer for your nervous system. So when you're in your sympathetic nervous system, that's a fight or flight. That's, that's telling your body, I'm ready to fight a grizzly bear. All the blood rushes to your big limbs. That's why you feel that jitteriness. That's why you can also feel kind of numb at times. Lots of blood is getting shut down from your brain because your brain doesn't need to think to fight a grizzly bear. It just needs to fight or run. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And we got to start to slow that down. So equalizing inhale and exhale, that turns on your rest and digest. That's your parasympathetic nervous system. And all you got to do is go, all right, I'm going to let my inhale come up. I got to maybe three beats. Now I'm going to come down three beats with my exhale. So for panic-driven anxiety, things like that, best thing I want to do is try to regulate what I'm doing here with my body, shake my limbs out a bit, get that paced breathing going, try to stay there in that space to kind of try to prove to your brain, I can be here with this thing. It doesn't have to demolish me right now. Get out of that head, call out the process. If you're not at a panicked level, see how long you can sit with that discomfort. At first, it's going to feel like you're holding a 50 pound weight. Guarantee you give it six and a half minutes. You stay out of some negative talking out here. And all of a sudden it's more like a 10 pound weight. It just starts to dissipate because it was a temporary moment. Your body was responding to that. And the moment has now since moved on. So I hope that gives kind of a gauge of two different ways you could kind of uh, work with yourself. If you need to leave the space though, to re-regulate and come back and try it again. That's awesome too. Mm, I love that. That, that, yeah, I mean, it, it's funny how when you're in a situation that doesn't require fight or flight, it still activates. Yes. Oh, yeah. Our, our brains do not know how to filter the difference between an actual like train coming on and our thoughts becoming super triggered, elevated. I sometimes to move away from the word trigger because I don't feel like it really adequately describes what's happening. You're getting really highly stimulated. That's what that means. You're elevated in that moment. Um, but yeah, it can't, it can't decipher between your body being elevated by stimuli. That's really reminiscent of something that felt very threatening, maybe years ago. And again, a train coming right at you. We have to be able to call that process out. We've got to be able to learn how to get that 3000 foot view. So we don't feel like we're fighting ourselves. Right. Absolutely. So people listening, be nicer to yourself. (laughs) If you take anything away is that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Now, now, um, I guess my last question for you, Carly, um, before we go, I wanted you to plug no CD a little bit. So what is the organization? Like, what do you guys do? Where can people find it? Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity to do so. So no CD is a teletherapy program. So it's all virtual. We uh, service both the United States, Canada, the UK, Australia, and actually several other countries. So if you're in another space, just call into our care team. They're going to help sort of guide you um, who whom from our organization can help. If you go to treatmyocd.com, that's our homepage. Uh, we also have an awesome Instagram. Um, if you look up treatmyocd on Instagram, you'll find us there. I've got an Instagram that often gets tagged there. So I give like helpful tips like we talked about today uh, with counseling with Carly. And we treat primarily OCD, so obsessive compulsive disorders. We also treat other compulsive disorders. So that could be like, tick disorders, BFRBs, which is stuff like skin picking, hair pulling, hoarding, things like that. Um, But we also work with anxiety in the mix of all this stuff too. So if you're someone who knows that you've always dealt with anxiety, but you feel like some of what I talked about was relatable, call in and get a free 15 minute screening phone call. At the very minimum, you'll be able to say, yep, not for me. Potentially you found your way to a better treatment, something that's more productive for you. 
I love it. I'll put those links down below. Carly, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a blast. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. I had so much fun. And to all my listeners, I will see you guys next time. Thank you.